this is the central question. How do we cooperate with those whom we politically dislike? How do we keep them close? Although it doesn't have to mean that we don't say what we think. It's a fundamental question. And as for what is happening here, I think this question has not been uh, challenged. And that somehow, also with the last steps of Warsaw, the window is closing. Coming to you from the banks of the River Danube, you're listening to the Vienna Coffee House Conversations podcast with me, Ivan Vejvoda. I'm a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences, where I lead the Europe Futures program. So welcome to our digital salon. In each of the Vienna Coffee House Conversations episodes, I'll be joined by Europe's Futures Fellows and leading thinkers from around the world. We'll be probing their current research through discussion, challenge, and exploration. Listen along as we explore the ideas, debates, and encounters that will shape the future of democracy in Europe and beyond. Today, I'm honored and very pleased to host and welcome Karolina Vigura. Karolina hails from Poland. She is a historian of ideas, a sociologist and a journalist. She is a member of the board of Kultura Liberalna Foundation in Warsaw and a senior fellow of the Center for Liberal Modernity in Berlin. She is a lecturer at Warsaw's University Institute of Sociology and focuses on the political philosophy of the 20th century and And we will discuss this emotions in politics, as well as on sociology and ethics of memory, particularly transitional justice, historical guilt, and reconciliation. She is a member of the European Council on Foreign Relations. And most lately, she will publish a book in Germany with Jaroslav Kuisch called Post-Traumatic Sovereignty. So again, a topic that I'm sure we'll be touching upon. This book is about to appear in Germany. Carolina, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So a lot to discuss. Poland is about to go into elections. So we're talking before October 15. Most recently, there were quite surprising statements coming from the Polish government that they would stop or interrupt supply of weapons uh, to Ukraine. Poland has been seen as one of the most prominent countries showing solidarity with uh, the Ukrainian uh, people, with the many refugees that your country uh, accepted. Maybe maybe we should start with the uh, immediate and current situation What is the outlook? What are the prospects uh, as we go into elections? To use the cliche, look into your crystal ball and, and tell us. The crystal ball tells me <laughs> that, <laughs> that we have been constantly talking about a lot of kinds of populism in the past few years. But in fact, when it comes to Poland right now, right here, just days before the coming parliamentary elections, There are two kinds of populism. One kind of populism is the populism that is in opposition. This kind of populism is a player on the political scene, one of the players. It starts to, it, it strives to, to, to gain and win the power, but it basically plays the rules everybody plays. In the second type of populism, this is a situation when the populist party is already holding a government And they do everything not to lose power and do everything in order to be the only player on the field. 
So this is exactly what is happening right now in Poland. This is a very complicated campaign. Anybody could win as for the the peace party, the government party, and and the main opposition party, a civic coalition. They they both could win, but we are ahead of the election still and very much can still happen. The government is extremely desperate not to uh, lose the power. And is that why this decision on sending weapons to Ukraine is more of a domestic political issue, trying to retain those votes, as you say? From what I understand, they're more in a retention of votes policy than in gaining new votes policy. This is a very good question. Uh, Poland does behave in the past weeks as if it wanted to be abandoned by everybody, doesn't it? And yes, you are right that many decisions are being taken just for the sake of some group of electorate. It is also very important to grasp that in well-functioning democracies, parties which strive for power have distinct concepts of society that might be a concept of a more conservative or a more liberal society or uh, of, of a pluralist or multicultural society, for example. But the populist government doesn't have a concept of society. What it has is a concept of electoral groups. So there are groups in Polish electorate, mostly in the eastern Poland, mostly the farmers, who are interested basically in the Ukrainian grains not being sold cheaply. Which would bring down prices of Polish grain. And of course, course in Europe, exactly. So the Polish government has taken on a quite surprising strategy. The fact that there is a competition and even a row between Poles and Ukrainians as for the grains was still, I think, possible to explain. Because it is not only about Poland, though there are also other Eastern and Southern European countries that feel threatened by the strong Ukrainian grain market. But the fact that there is a logic consequence in the heads of Polish government, that from point A being there is a raw on the Ukrainian grains, they, go, they come straightly to point B, we declare that we stop delivering weapons to Ukraine in the moment when, when, when Ukraine is struggling with its offensive and, and President Zawinski doesn't try to explain that it's too rosy, yeah. this is very difficult to explain. And so I think the only way to explain it is the fact that the populist government seeks the ways to preserve its electorate in the moment when the elections are approaching very fast. Can I ask you a broader question that was prompted by your first sentence, that there are two populist policies, one with the opposition, the other with with the ruling party and government. Is it, nece- or is it possible to have an opposition that could win on a non-populist ticket? 
And this is not only regarding Poland, because I think we're seeing very similar things in other countries that you described. Obviously, and what is happening today in Poland is also very similar to what has been happening in Hungary before in April 2022, and then just a couple of months ago in Turkey. And we've seen in Slovakia. So basically, the, the scenario seems very similar each and every time, namely There are populists who do not wish to cede the power to the opposition. And there is opposition which has learned a lot, because that can be said not only about Polish uh, opposition, but also about opposition in those countries that we've mentioned. And even the polls can look quite favorably for the opposition. Even the vote doesn't have to be fake. It, it can be actually a, a vote which is well organized and without any, so to say, additional votes put into the ballot box. But there is one difference between this kind of situation and the situation in a well-functioning democracy. Namely, it is the election campaign which is being manipulated, which is unequal, which is unfair. Is it mostly unfair in the media or more generally? Quite generally. The media, of course, but which media, right? The law and justice government has seized the national media, formerly the public media in, in Poland, already eight years ago. And of course, these media have been changed into an instrument of um, ridiculous propaganda, obviously. But what they do is, is, is much more. They also have been paying enormous sums for the internet campaign. So let me just mention that so far... PiS has spent one and a half million Polish złoty, mm -hmm. the ruling party, on the election campaign in Internet. So 1,5 million Polish złoty. What the opposition could spend is just 70,000 Polish złoty. So you can see that the, the difference, to say it bluntly, PiS, the governing party, is simply pouring state money into the election. They are also organizing a referendum on the day of the election, just like in Hungary. The referendum also is a nice instrument to pour the public money into it. And it consists of, of four quite vague questions about migration, about European Union, etc., etc., which basically are constructed in order to initiate fear, collective fear. And of course, everybody is to, to vote no. And last but really not least, the institutions like police and the military are also used. Like, for example, they organize picnics and during the picnics there is police and the military and they are taking photos together, right? So, so these all are ways to mobilize much more electorate than it would be possible without it in a fair campaign. Perhaps I would also like to mention the organized or at least initiated, consciously initiated campaigns of hate around particular yes, persons. Yes, I think and that's very important to mention. I think the the, mo the the biggest now is is the is the campaign which is centering around Agnieszka Holland and her new film, which is called The Green Border. A world-renowned filmmaker, Agnieszka Holland. Yes, a numerous Oscar nominee. Yeah. And of course, also a person who does have political views, but as for her works, they are always refined and nuanced. And so the film is, is not in the least 
an attack on the Polish state. It is rather a lament over human nature and the situation that we have come to when it comes to migrants and Europe. It tells a story about the, the Polish-Belarusian border and about people who either help the people from Afghanistan who have landed in the forests and are starving and freezing to death, or they don't want to help them. So she is showing a whole array of, of human behaviors in a very, I would say, Christian humanitarian attitude. And yet she has been, it is very difficult to believe, but she has been compared mm. by, the, by the incumbent minister of justice to the Nazi propagandists. And the, people, and the people who go to the cinemas have been compared to, to, to Nazi collaborators in oh Poland. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so you can just imagine if this is coming from the top, then it is really difficult to describe with words what is happening on the Internet as for the trolling against Agnieszka Holland. Such things unfortunately very effective when it comes to scaring the electorate. This brings me to, to an opinion piece that you wrote with your co-author Jaroslav Kuisch in the New York Times last summer in June with the title, Poland is not the friend the West thinks it is. And this obviously created a lot of blowback from certain quarters in your country. Could, could you say a few words? Obviously, what you've described up to now, I think, reveals some of the content of that opinion piece. But how how was it received in Poland? It's it's interesting that the the choice of questions of yours because this is also an example of such campaign. So in this case, we also had two ministers or vice ministers reacting on Twitter or on X. X former Twitter. <laughs> And, and calling us traitors, as well as suggestions in the prime minister's speech, and a whole campaign of people who have been wishing us that we are hanged and shaved, and etc., etc., and using the Polish word targowica, which dates back to the 18th century, but basically in Polish context, it means treason, state treason. So what we wrote in the piece, just to clarify that. We were trying to describe a certain paradox. At that time, it looked as if Poland was an extremely important ally in a coalition of states helping Ukraine, not only militarily, but also materially in many ways. And this is, of course, very good, because Ukraine should be supported militarily and materially and humanly. Although we have been pointing at the fact that somehow on the way of Poland changing its face to a country which helps Ukraine, many of the observers in the West forgot what kind of political regime it has. And so we were reminding, so to say, that it is unacceptable to grow friends that are at the same time enemies of liberal democracy and are further democratically backsliding. We were quoting in the, in the essay for the New York Times the beautiful fragment from The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, who at some point states that Kurz was not a person that was evil from himself, but he has been also created by others. 
And also the fact that we have openly stated that, well, in the lack of presence uh, of constitutional tribunal in Poland, it is Washington that actually can put pressure on Warsaw. And this has caused an enormous outrage. Although, just between us in this podcast, it seems very true. We have been informed by the journalists, for example, that just after the Prime Minister Marowiecki's words that Poland will not send weapons to Ukraine anymore, Washington has somehow already tried to intervene. And perhaps it will intervene again more efficiently. Yes, because we heard that suddenly there was a change of language, that this was temporary, that uh, this is only for those That's weapons right. that were... That's yeah, right. so clearly there was an intervention right. from somewhere, quote-unquote. Yes, yes, and in this, in this, in this case, when we were writing this, uh, this essay, the, the, the main discussion about Poland and the rule of law was concerning the so-called Lex Tusk, the bill that basically was created by the government in order to create a commission that would be capable of sending anybody to political retirement just because this commission says so, without any whatsoever right to, to go to another instance. It recalls the McCarthy era. Exactly. It was obvious that it was focused on Donald Tusk in, in an attempt to marginalize him from the campaign. So, but there uh, and was huge this, blowback and protests against this. There was a very huge blowback, but also we unofficially learned that Washington has intervened and effectively. So if you have a constitutional court which is not in Warsaw but in Washington, it is thus very complicated. Let, let me take you to, to a broader European question, and that is that sort of loose journalistic punditry has said that with the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, the fulcrum of Europe has moved eastwards and that East European member countries of the European Union will have a, a greater say. Uh, in a podcast I did with our colleague Natalie Tocci, I asked her the same question. She said, well, not really, because in the end, it is for better or for worse, France and Germany who decide on the big issues of money, on the agricultural policy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, while at the same time recognizing that the voice of a Poland and the Baltic countries is much stronger given that they did predict that Russia would have this behavior. I'd like you to comment on that, but the other thing is that many people have said that the German-Polish relation will be absolutely cardinal for the way that, that Europe moves forward. And we know the many issues and the relations between these two key countries. Do, do you think that that is the case? And what, in your view, is the state of those relations today? So first... I believe that Natalie Tocci is quite right. It seems that there has been a potential for the center of European gravity, let's call it, shifting east. But it, it lacks leadership. And when I say it lacks leadership, I think about the biggest country of the region, namely Poland. I do think that Poland has had a tremendous chance of joining the countries that will be eventually deciding on the shape of Ukraine together with President Zelensky when the war has ended. 
But Poland has lost the chance, so far, at least. Poland could represent the other small Eastern Central European countries in playing such a role. But as for now, it doesn't seem that this will be possible. To some extent, we come here back to the same subject as with your former question. So how do we integrate countries which are not liberal? And as for their being democratic, they're zebras perhaps. So sometimes they are democratic, (laughs) sometimes they're not. So how do we integrate them into an alliance that could help Ukraine? And I do think, as the German intellectual um, Ralf Fuchs says, this is the central question. How do we cooperate with those whom we politically dislike? How do we keep them close? Mm-hmm. Although it doesn't have to mean that we don't say what we think. It's a fundamental question. And as for what is happening here, I think this question has not been uh, challenged. And that somehow, also with the last steps of Warsaw, the window is closing. The window for, for Central and Eastern Europe to to to, to bring uh, the balance to and European Union. And in that Union. regard, the elections are extremely important, whichever way they go. They um, will define the future. What is, I think, only rarely seen from the Polish point of view, which is very Poland-centered, these elections will also have a great weight for the whole region, simply because Warsaw is, or Poland is such a large country lately with a strong military potential. But as for this, we have two scenarios right now. Either those elections will be won by the ruling party, and then we will have some cooperation of the ruling party with Confederacja, most probably. far right, very far right This is a far right uh, party, I would say, at least Mm post-fascist. And what will it look like? It will depend the processes of the democratic backsliding, which we have been seeing, including the fight with independent judiciary and the free media. It will also go deep into uh, spheres of free speech, like, for example, the academia and such international figures, as the mentioned before, Agnieszka Holland. And it will also further deteriorate the rights of minorities, including LGBTQ plus community and the transgender persons, as well as women. So this will happen and probably also Poland will marginalize itself and also Eastern Central Europe as for the Ukrainian case. So this is scenario number one. The scenario number two is that the opposition wins it is perhaps even more complicated because okay. you have explained <laughs> because most of the people outside Poland, Poland basically think that this solves everything yes. and that Poland will just go back to on, old ways, good old ways. <laughs> yes, like a pendulum. It yes. will just go back and it will be the, the good Poland from before 2015, but it won't. First, because the repairing of the judiciary, of the the populist damages, yeah, you're right, are extremely difficult when you have a loyal president coming from the current government camp in his office until 2024, so a year more. Then you have 
marionette constitutional tribunal and Supreme Courts. So you have extremely difficult situations for doing anything with reforming this system. And of course, the opposition has been repeating over and over again that they will legally revert to the, the former system. But the former system has not been legally changed. So it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult conundrum. So this is point number one. Point number two, we have hints that Poland's face will never be the same, so to say. If you listen, for example, how the democratic opposition reacted when it came to Jarosław Kaczyński demanding reparations from Germany. They didn't say it is ridiculous. They say it's a very good idea, but vote for us and we will demand reparations also from Russia and we will do it better. So as you see, there has been a certain shift in the public opinion or public spirit in Poland, which the opposition is also trying to communicate with. Yes. And on German-Polish relations, I mean, apropos of reparations, what is the state of, of the relations? Sadly, I remember Ivan Krastev saying that Poland and Germany could do the same for a European Union as Germany and France in the past. This is a very beautiful, truthful sentence. Only it's not possible with the current leadership. It doesn't only boil down to Poland, but... I do think that there is a certain amount of work to do. Both societies do not know much about each other. Germans know less, yes. much less. Yes, which is usually the case yes, in well, the situation between it countries. It is very uh, yeah. usually the case that the East knows the West, but the West yes. doesn't know the East. Exactly, exactly. And so there would be a lot to do here, but... Both sides also in the Polish-German scenario uh, act as if they have been insulted. So the Poles have been insulted because the Germans were wrong about Putin and the Germans are insulted because Poles do not have liberal democracy. And so they both react as if they had the only truthful definition of the situation. And so there is a lot of work to be really done, but also there is a lot of work avoidance. On the German side, it is a lot of empty words that do not have particular steps following those beautiful words. On the Polish side, which is perhaps now the central thing, there is this anti-German propaganda. Even if we assumed the best possible intentions on the German side, I do understand that it must be very difficult to talk with your Polish partner if the Polish partner constantly says that you are a Nazi, that you have not changed after 1945, that you try to, 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 to make Brussels your puppet and actually Brussels equals Berlin, etc., etc. So, so it is another task which is sadly very difficult to solve right now. Indeed, populists all over the world and no need to recall uh, Trump or, or Brexit and the ways that this has been manipulated to achieve political gain of various sorts. As, as we slowly uh, approach the end of our podcast, I would like to come to your research topic, 
about collective emotions in times of global crises. And of course, the theme of the book that will appear in, in the coming weeks in Germany entitled Post-Traumatic Sovereignty, which is, in my uh, appreciation, most positively loaded to address many of the ways in which the world works. And especially the fact that you have looked at, at the issues of memory, transitional justice, historical guilt, and reconciliation. And as as listeners who follow this know, I, I come from, from a country that no longer exists, Yugoslavia, where in the aftermath of all these conflicts, we have had to look at all this. So, Karolina Vigura, if you can give me a sense of what you are looking at when you look at collective emotions and what the state of this post-traumatic society is, because in, in sorts, we are all in a sort of post-trauma, whether we have been through conflict or not, because the socioeconomic situation, the rising inequality, the fact that AI and digital will replace 50% of jobs in the world. I mean, these are front page titles in newspapers, and people live in fear and uncertainty. So a couple of things, you know, I have been strongly influenced by Spinoza. And Spinoza, philosopher from the 17th century, says at one point something which has been, for me, extremely enlightening. Namely, emotions precede politics. First we have emotions, and then only after those emotions have, have shaped our first reactions, we do have rationality, or reason, he would say, and then we create politics. And actually, if you look into the newest neurobiological research, you, you will find that, that basically it has been confirmed that, that our brains basically first have emotions and then we have the rationality. And even Leonard Modinov, an author of the beautiful book Emotional, states that without rationality, we would probably be able to function in a very narrow, simple way. But without emotions, we wouldn't even have the, the possibility of, of putting your spoon into your mouth in order to eat anything. So it's, it's, it's an extremely vast subject. And with the newest wave of, of populism, it has started to be clear to me that whereas we live in an extremely emotional epoch, we hardly have any understanding of what emotions and collective emotions are and how they shape our democratic and undemocratic politics and how they also shape the reactions to such disasters as the Putin's war in Ukraine. So this is where the post-traumatic sovereignty, the book, um, which is going to be published by Circumb uh, in German, um, uh, begins. It begins with a question, how come those Central and Eastern European nations knew better uh, what Putin's Russia is. What kind of experience they had? How come their fear was so deep-seeing as for what the nature of the system is, what is the logic of the system? And so we are writing in this book two parts, basically. The first part is a historical part where we show how the historical trauma of losing one's statehood in Eastern and Central Europe has been a fundamental experience that informed 
the current Eastern Europeans, Eastern Central Europeans, about what Putin's Russia is. This is first, and we go further than the 20th century. We basically try to show that the trauma is much older. It might even uh, link us to, to what has been happening 300 years ago. So this experience of the ever-returning Russian imperialism is very deep. And in the second uh, part of the book, we have a lot of disturbing questions. Like, for example, what is the relation between the trauma and the moral responsibility? If we believe that everybody is traumatized, then how do we say what is good and bad in politics? What is politics of trauma? Who has the the right to be uh, legitimized in his or her suffering? And last but not least, there is also this part when we write about the Via Crucia in, in Rome in 2022, when the cross is being held by a Russian and a Ukrainian. And Pope Francis basically suggests that they both, or their nations, have both suffered, and so they are equal. But we ask are they really equal? Is the suffering of Russians and Ukrainians equal? And how can we use the moral categories in order to understand what is the difference in trauma and what is the difference in moral responsibility for what is happening? Indeed, a, a huge a series of questions that, that have been experienced by many generations. And in, in in this part of the world where we both come from, you from the northern part, I from the southern part, I think we're we're always bewildered when West Europeans, for lack of a better word, say we have had peace for 70 years, which is true for the West, but not for the whole of Europe, given the invasions of the Soviet Union in Hungary uh, and Czechoslovakia, not to mention the occupation by Turkey of Cyprus, of the north of Cyprus, etc. And I think you're absolutely right to talk about the the familial traumas, the, the, that all our families have gone through this, and parents and grandparents probably pass on to us both part of the trauma, but also the resilience. I think we know how to survive better for for again for better or for worse because our societies have 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 gone through this so we'll end on that note with as as is proper fundamental questions many of which you are rightly asking with with your co-author and i hope that the book is translated very quickly for a broader audience to to look at and let me say that i'm very happy that you're a Europe's Futures Fellow this year. And of course, this then remains a, a fellowship beyond the actual year that you are doing it. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. I'm deeply honored to be a Europe Futures Fellow. And thank you so much for having me. That concludes this episode of Vienna Coffeehouse Conversations, the podcast brought to you by the Europe's Futures Programme at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Europe's Futures is a program of impact, ideas and action for a Europe that rises to the challenges of the 21st century and is undertaken in collaboration with the Esther Foundation. To find out more about our work and research, visit europesfutures.eu.